When I think about the resurrected life, there are all kinds of questions that come to my mind. And we've been, probably to yours, we've been thinking about that over the last few weeks during the season of Easter. And, and thinking about how, it, when we read the scriptures, it seems to be telling us that rather than, than the, um, the coming of Christ, the reappearing of Christ, taking us from the earth, but rather Christ redeeming the earth and all of creation, Romans 8 says, and establishing the resurrected kingdom here on earth. And, and that has implications for how we think about the earth and all the things that God has created. It has implications about our work and what we do and the eternal value of our work. It has implications about our possessions and, and the eternal understanding of what we do with what we have. And I think it also says something to us about our relationships. What our relationships in the resurrected life will be uh, is a little bit difficult to understand. But I am convinced that if we, are, if we are existing here on this earth in bodies that might look something like the resurrected body of Christ, and we are working and we have things that we've made and, and we are engaged in the created world, that we will somehow be related to each other. It's just natural. The question is, what does that look like? And what does that have to do with us now? I think when we think about relationships, we have to start all the way back in the Garden of Eden in creation. Because it tells us in creation that we are created in the image of God. Genesis 1, 26 and 27 is so clear. God says, let's create human beings in our image. And verse 27 says, as so God created human beings in his image. It's not something haphazard. It is intentional by God, just as all of creation is intentional. And he creates us in his image. And it makes me wonder if one of the reasons why God gives to Israel the second of the Ten Commandments, that they are not to have make any images of God, is because he has already created an image of himself. And that's us. When you think about all the other images of God that people might create, there are pagan practices, there are, there are different things that would draw Israel away from worshiping Yahweh. But perhaps at the heart of the problem is that all of those images are false representations of who God is and the image of God. And only God himself could create, him, create something in his image as he's done with human beings. And it is because we're creating the image of God that we have value and worth. There is something also about the image of God that speaks to God's desire for human beings to be holy and to be righteous. I remember hearing uh, Dennis Kinlaw talk about this years ago when I was in seminary and, and describing in many ways that holiness is narrowed down to one small idea is being fully human. Now, I had a hard time with that because when I think thought of being fully human, I thought that's not a good thing because we're sinful beings and we do all kinds of things wrong and we rebel against God. And to be human doesn't seem like it would be the thing that God wants us to do. But if you if we go back to putting that in the context of creation, then to be holy is to be as we were created to be. And that is fully human. 
And, and that's what God's design is for us, to be like him, to bear his image, because we are filled with his spirit, filled with his presence, filled with all that he is, and we truly reflect the image of God. Now, because of sin entering the picture, because of sin in our lives, we fall way short of doing that. But that is God's design for his people. And it seems like when you read the scriptures all the way through, God is continually saying things, doing things to prompt us toward becoming fully human as he created us to be. And in the midst of being fully human, we're in relationship. And I'm convinced that we learn and we experience that kind of holy living righteousness, what God designed and created us to be, we experience that mostly in relationship. We are created for each other. Genesis 2.18 tells us that God said he created human beings and he said, creating the man, it's not good for him to be alone. And so he created the woman. God created us to be relational beings. And that's, again, how we, we image God, who in the Trinity is a relational being. And he relates to us and to his creation. And we are created in the image of God to be relational beings. And it is in the image of God, as, as to get to be in the image of God as he desires, it will happen in relationship. Now, if you're like me, we're thinking... Maybe we'd be, we're better off to, be, to escape from relationships. Because while relationships can be some of the most joyful, wonderful moments in time, they also can be something else. But it is in relationships that we understand the nature of God. It is in relationship that, our, that we are challenged and that we learn what it means to be holy. And I think that that's a hard concept for us because we are so individualistically minded. And I wonder if maybe one of the reasons we struggle for that with that is that if our, our view often of Christ reappearing is that he will take us from the earth and we will escape from the earth. And part of that is escaping from all of the people that make our lives miserable from all the relationships that are hard and difficult and we struggle with, and we get away from that. But as I read the scriptures, as we've been talking over the last few weeks, I think when Jesus appears, he will come and he will redeem all of creation, including us, and he will redeem our relationships. And rather than trying to escape from them, we embrace them. But it isn't natural to us. It isn't easy for us. I'm fascinated. Amanda and I were talking about this the other day. How few songs have been written, hymns, contemporary songs, pick your pick. How few songs have been written about Christians relating to each other. We have a few of them, but you look through the hymnal, most of our hymns are about our relating to God or God relating to us, but there really are relatively few of them about relating to each other. That's why a few years ago when we were doing this as a theme for our prayer vigil. Amanda wrote that song we sang a couple minutes ago because we didn't have another one. And so she wrote that one. There's something about saying, God and I are good. 
It's something else entirely to say, my wife and I are good, or my husband and I are good, or my daughter and I are good, or my son and I are good, or my parents and I are good, or my roommate and I are good, or my colleague and I are good, my neighbor and I are good. Now you're talking about something that pushes us in a completely different thought process. Because we can all justify you know, things that we may relate to God and, and falling short of those things, and we anticipate God forgiving us. It's a whole different discussion when we start talking about how we relate to other people as a part of our spirituality. And the reason for that is because while relationships can be awesome, they can also be awful. And we know that. We hurt each other. You think about some of the most profound moments of your life, and they're about relationships. And some of the most painful moments of your life are probably about relationships. And often we don't mean to hurt one another. Let's be honest, sometimes we do. But most of the time we don't mean to, but we do. Last week I was sitting in first service and had my phone sitting on the chair next to me and I got a text message. Now, first of all, it's kind of unusual to me to get a text message in the middle of church. It was like 8 36 or something like that. So we were singing, and I looked down at it. I recognized who it was from, somebody in the church. And they just one word, breakfast, three question marks. And I'm like, okay. You do realize we have church this morning, right? I mean, you know, and so I just wrote back and said, I'm kind of busy right now. <laughs> and they wrote back and said, oh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to text you. I was wanting to text somebody else. Uh, now, that offended me a couple of ways. One is, <laughs> I was kind of hungry, and I wouldn't have minded breakfast, and they did not end up bringing me breakfast, so that was a whole other issue. But also sitting there thinking, wait a second, you were text- you wanted somebody else to have breakfast with you and not me? I know I can't go, but it could at least ask me if I wanted to go. <laughs> I've got a gap in part of the service. I could slip out and get back. That thought actually entered my mind. That's a weird thing. And, uh, you know, and I, funny thing is I had done the exact same thing a week before to somebody else. Cindy and I were having a conversation about something, and I'd written back and said, yeah, that's fine, or I'll, I'll be okay. And I texted it to the wrong person, and they, looked, they wrote me back and went, what? What are you talking about? I had no context for that. Fortunately, they were pretty innocuous texts that we sent to each other, nothing sensitive or personal or, you know, that kind of thing. And someone, but you can imagine what it would be like if those had been something personal. Something that would have been hurtful unintentionally. Someone said to me after it's a, minute, a little bit ago that that's called a text ash, text. Uh, how's that word go? Text ostrophe, I think is what they said. You know, we have a catastrophe only it's text instead. I can't even, if I can't say it, I probably shouldn't be talking about it, right? But we we do those things unintentionally, and you think of the times that we've said something, somebody said something to us, and deep in our spirit we know they didn't mean to hurt us. But they did. There's no way around it. It hurt. It's painful. And we're all walking around every day with hurts and pains and struggles from other people. And to say that holiness is learned and experienced primarily in relationship is kind of hard to take. And yet that's the point where we most need the Spirit of God in our lives. In the difficult moments, in the struggles, in the burdens, in those intimate relationships that God wants to be awesome even if there is the potential for pain and struggle. 
That's the very place that God wants to do a work in us and to make us new. And that's why the sign of God and his people has always been, and I'm convinced always will be, love. That's the sign of who God is, and that's the sign that identifies who God's people are. Love. As important as it is to know the scriptures, as important as it is to practice spiritual disciplines, as important as it is to do all the things spiritually that we need to do, at the heart of what it means to be a follower of Jesus is love. Jesus says just that to his disciples in the upper room. John 13, he says, they will know you're my disciples if you love each other. He could have said a thousand things about how they would be identified as his disciples. That's the one he picks. John, who's sitting in that room, then writes in his first letter, if you love God, then you love others. And if you don't love others, you don't love God. In that same letter, in verse 20 and 21, he says, people who say they love God and hate their brother, I only think of one word, he says, they're liars. You simply can't do it. That's the identifying mark of being God's people. And that's really what holiness means. It is having such a heart of love for God and for others that it changes and transforms our relationships. And I'm convinced that that's the, that's the mindset that God has for the resurrected life. At the heart of the resurrected life and our relationships will be love. Now, you might be wondering why we read that passage of Scripture earlier. After second service, someone said to me, I wasn't wondering why you read that passage. I was wondering, what are we going to do with those mason jars? That's what I'm really trying to think about. <laughs> I said, you're going to have to wait. I'm not going to tell you. But, you know, it's, it's a little bit, it's a kind of obscure passage. We'll talk a lot about this passage. But it does speak to relationships and the resurrection. The scene is that Jesus is, is, is getting close to the end of his life and uh, the, the religious leaders are coming to him uh, sort of in, in spurts to try to trick him with their theological questions and every time they walk away with their hanging their heads, beaten again. And finally, at the end of this passage, it says they stopped asking him questions. It, it's just not worth it because he, we can't trick him. And so the Sadducees, who don't believe in resurrection, come to Jesus and say, so we got a question about the resurrection. So if there's a resurrection, let's talk about the lever of marriage. And in this, in this Old Testament principle, a man and woman are married if they don't have children, and the man dies, she marries his brother. And the child they, may, they have is actually the, her first husband's child. And if that one doesn't bear a child, you keep going. And this guy had six brothers, and she marries all of them without children. And in the resurrection, and she dies, and the Sadducees say, so in the resurrection, which we don't believe in, so let's see what she have to say about this. Whose husband is she? Whose wife is she? Jesus never does answer that question. He goes to something deeper. And he says, first of all, despite what you guys say, you have no idea about the Scriptures. You're ignorant of the Scriptures. There is a resurrection. That's why we talk about the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. They are dead, but they're alive. And that's the heart of everything I'm trying to tell you. 
But let's just talk, he says, about marriage in, in the resurrection for a second. And he says, it will not be what we think of it, how we think of it now. And he doesn't really explain what it is. He says, we'll be like angels. I don't think he means that we will be like angels. What he means is we will, about this particular thing, we will have the same kind of mindset as the angels have. Eugene Peterson in the message words it this way. He says, um, marriage is a major preoccupation here, but not there. Those who are included in the resurrection of the dead will no longer be concerned with marriage, nor, of course, with death. They will have better things to think about, if you can believe it. All ecstasies and intimacies then will be with God. I don't know exactly what he's saying, but in some sense he's saying that while we will have relationships and they will be somewhat the same, at the same time, those intimate relationships will be different. And as someone said to me last week, I get that, but I don't like it. And I understand that. I mean, someone that you have spent your life with, that you've engaged with, and whether it's you're talking about marriage or you're talking about parent and child relationships, siblings, best friends, we have these close, intimate relationships. And I can't help but believe that in some way, those will continue into, in the resurrection, but just not in the same way. It will be somewhat different. Oh, the best way I can, I can think of it, analogy, is... I was thinking about Juliana being born yesterday morning. And I suspect if we could ask her a question and say to her, do you want to be born? She would say, no, I'm perfectly comfortable where I am. This is awesome. I'm, I'm connected to my mother. I'm safe. I'm secure. I'm fine. There, I cannot imagine anything better than what I'm experiencing right now. I do not want to be born. And I suspect that might be one reason why God designed the birth process the way he did. It basically forces the baby out of the womb. Because they won't go by, their, by themselves. But we all know from living some that while being in the womb is terrific, it's nothing compared to life after you're born. And none of us would go back. And there's still a connection. She will always have a connection with her mother. It will just be different. And I think they would both say it's better. That's the best thing I can do to think of how we might view something like marriage and relationships in the resurrection that are hard for us to really comprehend. But there is something else going on here too. Joel Green says that this is not just about trying to describe marriage in that day. It's also talking about the value of women. Because in this story, Jesus says that there will not be marriage or people given in marriage. And that's talking about women because women were the only ones given in marriage. Men were not given in marriage, just women were. And they had no choice in the matter. They were, they were given and that's into the conversation. And you see in this story, this woman really has no say in this. She just goes from one brother to the next. And even though it's a, it's a story, it's probably not a true story, you can still see how, how people value women in that culture, that they are just tools. They're just pawns that we use to make our point. It's the same thing you see in John 8 when the woman who's caught in adultery is brought to Jesus. She's a pawn in trying to trick Jesus. And I'm thinking, where is the man who was caught in adultery? 
But that doesn't matter. And to a culture that does not value women as equal to men, that does not value children as equal to adults, that does not value people who who have certain occupations to everyone else, who don't value people who are diseased or in any way uh, broken, we might say, to a culture that pushes people like that to the margins, Jesus is making a statement that in the resurrection, that kind of thing is not going to happen. In the resurrection, there will not be... their They're valuable and they're not. They have worth and they really don't. They have significance and they don't really have significance. We will value all people equally because we will recognize for the first time that all of us really are created in the image of God. And we bear the image of God. And we will see that clearly in that day in ways that we have a hard time seeing now. Uh, you know, we often talk about when we get to, uh, when we get to, to that time of, of our existence. So you know, we want to talk to Abraham and Moses and Elijah and David and Peter and Paul and John and all these great saints. You know, St. Saint Francis and John Wesley and John Calvin and all these great people that have been, if we've seen as our heroes. And hopefully we'll have the chance to have those conversations. But I cannot quite fathom there being autograph books in heaven. I don't think there's going to be an announcement that says Abraham's going to be at the kiosk at 3 o'clock. If you want his autograph, start lining up now. I, I don't see that being the case. I think we will respect them and I think we'll be so grateful for their lives. But I think we'll do that about everybody who's in the resurrection. It makes me think of when I was, when I was young and we'd go to baseball games in Cincinnati. We'd get there as soon as the gates opened and we'd be there for batting practice and we would stay as long as we could in the night. But one of the reasons we wanted to get there early is we'd all run down to the, to the railing by the field hoping that the players would walk over toward us and we could get some autographs. And you always had to be your ball and pen ready or your paper and pen ready because they'd sign it. And I, you, know, you watch them, they pick them up and it's like scribbling on it. I mean, I, you could tell people it's anybody's autograph. You know, this is, this is Babe Ruth's autograph because you, know, you can't read it. But they're just going along and scribbling autographs. And you feel like, wow, look at this. I'm so privileged I got their autograph. But none of them ever asked me for my autograph. And again, as I think about that, that's a little offensive that they never did that, right? (laughs) Come on. But that's not how it works. That's not the culture of, of that type of arena. The important people are on the field. And the less important people sit in the stands and hope to get a glimpse of them, hope to get uh, something written from them, because they are more valuable in that context than the rest of us. And the resurrection is not going to be like that. In the resurrection, we will value everyone. We will value the gifts that they bring. We will value the, the way that they, they do things and see things. And, and we, we will value them because they, we will realize that they are created in the image of God, just like we are. 
And I think it will revolutionize our thinking. And my question is, if that's the way it's going to be then, then probably we need to start asking God or continue to ask God to help us see one another that way now. So the people we disagree with and people that we do agree with and people who have different perspectives than we do and people that we love spending time with and people that in 10 seconds can drive us crazy, to pray for God to give us a vision of them as bearing the image of God. That it would change our perspective of them as we prepare for that day and as we are answering our own prayer, Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Someone asked me the other day, do you think we'll argue in heaven? And my answer was yes and no. Of course, your natural response is no, of course not. But it seems to me that because I don't think we're all going to, I don't think we're going to lose all of our creative differences in heaven. God loves, loves variety way too much for all of us to just sort of meld into the same thing when we get there. Look the same, think the same, you know, be able to do the same things. I, this doesn't seem to me to make sense. Now, I'm supposing, so you know, you may think differently. But it seems to me that we will maintain the the natural uh, essence of our create of be, the creativeness of how God made us, and that means the potential for argument is there. Now, we won't argue about truth because. That will be clear. But all the opinions we have, all the different ways of seeing things, doing things, working things, the potential for that, I think, might still be there. But we won't argue with each other because our primary objective will be to love each other. And now, our, most of our arguments now are based on trying to convince people that we are right. Right? Trying to get people to believe and to prove to people that we are right, that we know what we're talking about, that we are important, that we have significance. And when we get there, none of that's going to matter anymore because all we're going to be thinking about is how we praise Jesus and how we worship God. And one of the most profound ways I think we do and will worship God is loving each other. And that's why Jesus says, that's what identifies my disciples. They love each other and nothing brings glory to God like seeing people in a loving relationship. Caring for each other, helping each other, surrendering to each other, being gentle with each other, and patient with each other, and kind with each other. Living out the fruit of the Spirit with each other. And now we do it, and we do it sometimes through gritted teeth then we will do it because nothing we want to do nothing else. Every part of our being will be absorbed in loving one another. And again, if, if that is the image of, of what the resurrected life will be like, then let's start praying or continue praying for God to help us do that same thing now. To bring his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven in our relationships. I remember reading in seminary about a woman who had a vision, and it was purely that, that she was uh, given the opportunity to go to hell and to observe what it was like. And when she got there, she was surprised to see that it was a huge table filled with food. It, it reminded me of one of those medieval castles and those great big tables you see in them. 
And it was just filled with the most sumptuous food you can imagine. And all the people were sitting around these tables. And there was just one rule. You could only eat what the silverware provided for you. And that silverware was all about four feet long. And all the people were starving, sitting in front of all this food. She was then whisked away into heaven. And even more surprisingly, when she got to heaven, she saw the exact same thing. Same table, same food, same utensils, and the same rule. You can only eat with these four foot long forks and knives and spoons. But while everyone in hell was starving to death, everyone in heaven was healthy and nurtured and having a wonderful time. And then she realized why. Because everyone in heaven was feeding everybody else. They were using those long forks to feed their neighbor. And the neighbor was using theirs to feed them. You know, there are all kinds of things about the resurrection that we simply do not know. And we can suppose and and we can think about it. And I think there's good to that. But I am convinced that we will be in relationships when in the resurrection. Different relationships, yes. But relationships nonetheless. And we will find not the relationships to be a burden, but a joy and a privilege. We will find great joy in serving one another and in needing one another and letting each other serve each other. And my prayer is that we will begin to get a glimpse of that now. That God will work in my heart and your heart to see each other and others in our lives as people created in the image of God, as people we have been given the privilege and the joy of loving like Christ. Father, thank you for this joy, this privilege of relationships. Just keep working on our hearts that through our relationships we might be one channel of bringing your kingdom on earth as it is in heaven through the grace of Jesus. Amen.